Well, if there's something that I've experienced and something that I've experienced growing up about dads, something that they have in common is that uh, they love to share wisdom with their kids, right? If you think about what dads do, it's, it's like their unique privilege, they find it, to tell their kids about life and what to do, right? They like to explain things and how things work. Uh, my dad likes to talk about cars, you know, and, and to explain them and to look at them and to pull things apart and, and, and to show me what to do with my car. Uh, dads really like to uh, share about their life experiences and things that they've done so that you, uh, so their children won't make the same mistakes, or they like to share stories about things that they've done so that their children's w- children would emulate them. And if there's one thing that I've observed and I've found in my own experience about children is that they already know everything that their dad is going to tell them. <laughs> and this weekend, I was just thinking about a story. I was just sharing a story about my dad with someone. And the older I get, the more this story means to me because it really impacted me at that point, but it means more to me now as, I'm, as an adult. But when I was about 15 years old, my dad was driving me somewhere, and he's going to drop me off. And I, uh, he was sharing wisdom with me, which he really likes to do, and I didn't really care. You know? and, and there was a point when he said, you were being really foolish, and I stopped listening to him, and all I could think was, my dad thinks I'm a fool. You know, and, I, and I was really upset, and I, the more he talked, the more we drove, the less interested I, care, I, I cared about the conversation, the more I just wanted to get out of the car. And I remember he dropped me off, and I just got right out of the car. I didn't say goodbye, and I slammed the door and started walking away. And my dad turned off the truck, and he jumped out, and he ran after me and put his arms around me. And he just said, I just want you to know I love you, and I, and I really care about you. And so what my dad, I don't remember anything my dad was telling me in the car. But what my dad told me when I got out of the car, well, I'll always remember because I've learned that when people use, especially parents, when they use harsh language, it isn't because they don't love you. It's, it's because they love you because they have a deep concern for your life and they have a care for you. And, and I believe that that is what Paul is doing in this passage. He's using this harsh language, this, this strong language uh, to kind of make a point to people he really cares about. And so I just want, uh, just to make the case that when you read this, I don't want you to read something into the text that isn't there. The, Paul isn't being mean here. He's, he's exhorting them in a way that, with love and care and, and, and a tenderness. And I hope that as we read this this morning and we learn from it, that we would take it with that kind of humble heart. And so I just want to pray one more time before we get into the text. Father God, I just want to personally thank you for my dad, who I really appreciate and who has carefully and and, uh, thoughtfully imparted wisdom into me. And I just want to thank you for the other men in this room who have been uh, a fatherly role to me. And just the fact that we get to be in a church of people that you placed here to learn wisdom from is such a joy. I can even think of peers who who are that to me. And so, and I also just want to thank you for Tom and Paul, our pastors, who are so fatherly to us as a congregation and in shepherding us and and taking time to read your word and to think about it and to preach it. Um, But God, I just want to thank you this morning that you are the perfect father and that every human father is going to fail their child, but it's such a great joy that you do not, God, you do not fail us. And I pray that as we read your word this morning, as we think through it, I pray that you would would open our hearts supernaturally, God, that you would really be a part of what we're doing here and that you would preach the gospel through a broken person like me. I pray that you draw us to just be in awe of you and that we would worship this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, so for those of you who might be visiting with us, or if you have missed the past couple weeks, we are going to be spending the summer going through the book of Galatians together. And uh, Galatians is a, is a pretty difficult book, but we've decided to, to go through it together and really learn from it. But the past few weeks, we have been learning about kind of the context of what uh, this book is about. And so what we've learned is that it's a letter from Paul to uh, a, a group of churches in the region of Galatia, which is uh, now a place in modern-day Turkey. And what he was doing is he was exhorting them to, to really um, uh, to, to think about the gospel that they once believed and to also think about what has been told to them since they believed that. And so it started all um, in verse 6. I want you guys to turn to chapter 1, verse 6. It's about a page back, or maybe two. And he says this. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So the church in which he's writing to, they're Christians, right? But they are believing something that isn't true. They're partaking in something that's not right. And so what Paul does here is he sets up uh, in this in this passage what he's going to talk about for all of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4. So if you uh, haven't listened to the sermon about this passage, it was on May 7th, I'd really encourage you to go on our website and, and listen to it. It's on gracechurchinfo.net. And if you don't know how to do that, find someone a little bit younger than you in the room before you go, <laughs> and they can they can show you how to do that. It's it's pretty simple, but uh, but that's why we have multi-generations here. It's, it's great. But it, Tom really set up... Uh, he, he gave a really good sermon in setting up this passage, and so uh, I'm not just trying to get brownie points with my boss, but it's a really, it's a great sermon. I hope you'd consider listening to it this week if you haven't already. But uh, what he does is, uh, here is he sets the stage for an argument that he's going to continue. So if you like to draw and color in your Bible like me, uh, I would just encourage you to write a box or highlight chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, because this is something that you should look back to for the next several weeks as we uh, go through chapter 3 and chapter 4. This is where it started. This is the starting point of his argument. And so it's my hope to kind of look at what is Paul arguing for here uh, to the context to which it's written, and then my hope is to draw out some application for us for today. So let's, let's go through this verse by verse. Chapter uh, 3, verse 1. Go back to that. He starts out like this. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. There's not many other parts of Paul's writings that are so shocking than this. There's two words that probably stuck out to you. Which ones are they? Foolish and bewitched. Good. And those two verses I found, are, are those two words are not found anywhere else in all of the Bible in the Greek text. And so that means it's pretty important to find out what those words mean. And the way you do that is to see how the word was used in, in the Greek culture at the time. So, so you understand what they were hearing when they heard those words. And so as I did some further study, I found that the word foolish in the way that Paul uses it here didn't mean, you know, it, so, it sounds really mean, but he wasn't saying stupid idiots, right? You're, you're so dumb. Uh, the way the word was used is to say what you're thinking is illogical. It doesn't make sense. Uh, you're being, uh, you're, you're not thinking. And so I, I think we can all relate to this. We've had people in our life where you just want to grab them by the shoulders, uh, probably parents and teachers, you want to grab someone by the shoulders and just shake them a little bit and be like, you are being so foolish. 
right? And it's not out of anger, but it's out of love. Like, you, you need to make better decisions. And then he continues, and he uses this word, bewitched. And this doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture, but it appears actually often in Greek literature. In what it, It's usually most often in letters. And at the end of a letter, before someone uh, signs their name, they'll usually say, uh, until we meet again, let no one bewitch you. And so it's this idea um, that Paul is writing. He's saying, who has tricked you since the last time I've seen you? Who has deceived you? And so Paul wasn't being unkind here. You know, the first time I read this, I thought, wow, Paul is really sassy. And, and then I read it in the context, and I was like, Paul is really mean. But then I thought about the story about my dad, and I thought about the way it was used. And it's, hey, Paul really cares about these people, and he really cares about what they believe. And that's how he starts his argument. And in almost every letter that Paul writes, he usually begins his argument with all this logic Right? If you've ever read Romans, it's like all it's you can like map it out. It's really clear. And he clearly talks about what the gospel is. But he does something completely different in Galatians because these people aren't thinking, right? They're just kind of experiencing things and then believing them. And so what he does is he points back to what they've experienced. His proof is their experience. And that is really unique to Paul. And so he says, It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. So he's saying, you heard with your ears and you saw with your eyes that the center of the gospel was Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul makes the claim that the center of the true gospel is not works, it's what has been done for you. Right? And that's the center of all of our Christian faith. It is... Paul took the, the most shameful and, and uh, distasteful part to the culture of the gospel, like Jesus, a king on a cross, being crucified, and said, that's the center of the gospel. And he's saying that your works do not belong. There's no room for your works on the cross. All the work has been done for you. That's the center. And he said, you heard that, and you believed that. And he says, why would you believe in something different now, you foolish Galatians? So he wraps his entire argument around that. So it's no wonder that even today, 2,000 years later, and and 2,000 years ago, Christians uh, symbolized their Christianity by the cross, right? You you can see crosses everywhere, and you probably think, you know, oh, that person's probably a Christian, right? And um, or not sometimes today. But uh, there's this guy named Tertullian, and he's actually one of the first people who who made the cross the Christian symbol, and he he wrote this. At every forward step in movement, at every going in and going out, when we put our clothes on, our shoes on, when we bathe, when we sit at the table, when we light lamps, when we sit on a couch, on a seat, in all ordinary actions of life, we trace upon our foreheads the cross. And thousands of years later, Christians still see the center of their gospel as portrayed by the cross. This man wrote in a book called The Cross of Christ. His name is John Stott. He wrote this. There is then, it is safe to say, no Christianity without the cross. If the cross is not central to your religion, your religion is not that of Jesus. So the event that Paul is referring to in verse 1 here is an experience that they heard and believed the gospel. Right? It's not just something that was emotional to them. It was something that happened where they heard it and they believed it. And what Paul is so perplexed by is the fact that they believed it and then stopped. 
So I know many people who have had this kind of experience, right, uh, where they become a Christian and there's this great joy inside of them. And, and I, as a Christian, there's no greater joy for me than being around people who just became Christians. You ever experienced that? The first time you, someone believes in Jesus Christ, there's this overwhelming sense of joy and excitement. And I remember on a, on a mission trip, someone had just believed in Jesus and they uh, claimed to be a Christian for the first time and, and they said that everything was new to them. And they said, everything I read in the Bible is like I'm reading it for the first time. Like I've never heard this before. And then what can tend to happen is you become a Christian Christian for 30 plus years and that joy is, is kind of lost, right? And, and if you read in chapter four, Paul actually says that to them. He said, when I visited you the first time, I experienced such great excitement about the gospel. Why, where, where has all your joy gone, he says. And then he goes on and he, conti- he continues with his argument by using rhetorical questions. And then he, at, the, at verse 6, which we'll look at, is he uses a, a specific example of what he's talking about. And then what Tom's going to preach on for the next few weeks are these uh, implications that come out of that. But why would he use rhetorical questions? Why would anyone use a question that they don't expect an answer for? Does that mean they're meaningless? No, it's, it's quite the opposite, right? Rhetorical questions are used probably by teachers and parents mostly to, to point out to their children or their students uh, they should be thinking about something that is extremely obvious and they should know the answer to, but that they're not thinking about it. Right? So he's going to ask all these questions. And what he tends to do is, it, what he's trying to do here is he's trying to shake them up to think about something that they should be thinking about. And so I'm going to call them the shakeups. All right? And there's four of them. And so shakeup number one, chapter three, verse two. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, the phrase he uses here is receive the Spirit, and that should be synonymous with becoming a Christian, right? When a person believes in Jesus Christ and they respond to his call, they receive the Holy Spirit inside of them. And so it is a supernatural thing that happens. And so someone isn't born a Christian because they grew up in a Christian home, right? People aren't Christians because they go to church and they do what the world thinks is right at the time. People aren't even Christians because they logically in their mind have decided that, well, God has to be real, right? Those things are good, but that's not what makes a person a Christian. What makes a person a Christian is this this supernatural thing that happens when the Holy Spirit comes. And so uh, what Paul is saying is that that happened to you. How did it happen? How did your Christian life begin? Is it because you started doing good things that God wanted? Or is it because you believed in God? Right? And the answer is obvious. Which one was it? It was not by works, but by faith. All right, shake up number two. Chapter three, verse three. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So Paul is certain that the people became Christians when he visited them the first time. And then these people came in and they tried to change their gospel and they, and they pulled out the Old Testament and they said, no, you're not doing the right thing. Look at what this says. You have to do this, you have to do this, uh, and you're not doing those things. What you're doing is wrong. And, and so uh, they started with belief and then they started doing these works because these what they called Judaizers were telling them to do them. And what Paul is saying is that doesn't make any sense. How can you come to faith believing that it's only by grace from Jesus and then continue that relationship with God by working for it? it those, those things don't go together. 
One of my favorite pastors said this. He said, folks, if you could lose your salvation, you would. We cannot work for our faith. It is God working for you. So the answer to this question is obvious too. It is not continued by works. It's continued by faith. Shake up number three, chapter three, verse four. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So I can imagine uh, the Galatian converts uh, having lost a lot of friends and family because of what they believed, right? They were persecuted. But I can imagine more that they were persecuted by these Judaizers, these people coming in and telling them that they're wrong. And I don't think that they talked like Paul did. I don't think they just said, you're being foolish. I think they probably said, you're being idiots, right? The Bible says this, you're not doing that. And, and what they were supposed to do as Christians is to remain strong in their faith, and they, and they didn't. And so Paul is saying, did you suffer those things for no reason? And as Christians, we're supposed to suffer. Jesus said, it's a promise. If you, if you believe my gospel, the world will hate you. It, you. You will suffer, but that suffering is doing something in you for his glory and for your goodness, for your good. And, and what he's saying here is that you stopped that. Why would you turn from what you suffered for? Is it just to not suffer anymore? Your suffering isn't in vain. It is for a reason. And so the answer to this is obvious. They didn't suffer because of doing good works. They suffered because of their faith. And they should continue to do so. Shake up number four, chapter three, verse five. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, this final question is pretty simple, and it kind of correlates to the second verse. But what he's saying here is that does, is it through God's power and from your faith, your faith in God's power that does miracles, or is it because of your works that miracles happen? A few years ago, this church had written an article on their website about how they had worshipped God so well, and they had such a great worship service, and they said the right prayers that God appeared in the form of a cloud in their auditorium. And the problem, I'm, I'm not saying God can't do that, but what I'm saying is that the problem with that is the way they said that. God didn't do that because of their perfect worship. God does things when, in, when he pleases to do them. And we're supposed to act in faith that he will in his timing and trust him in those things. Right? And so the Galatians, they saw miracles, but they knew, they, they saw the miracles because they believed God could do them, not because of what they were doing to get them to happen And so the Galatians heard the gospel, they believed it, they received the Spirit, they saw God do miracles, and Paul's big question is, why would you leave this? Why would you stop believing this and start doing this? Why would you believe in faith and then do works to get your faith to get your relationship with God. You're already made righteous in front of him. And then he proves his point with this really awesome example in verse six. And Paul is so smart in using this example because I I can imagine that the Judaizers, these people who are trying to deceive these churches are probably reading this letter and they're probably taking out the Bible and they're saying, no, this is wrong. Look here, look, look here. And so what he does is he takes that Bible that they're using and he goes back to the very beginning to the father of Judaism, Abraham, and so we're going to turn there. If you would turn there with me to Genesis chapter 15. It's at the very beginning of your Bible. It's a few pages in. Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 4. 
the context of this is uh, there's a man named Abram, and God calls him out to be his people. And he says, you will have children, and your children will be called my people, and you'll be a great nation. All right? and, but Abraham's really old. And so he's starting to doubt, am I ever going to have kids? And, and so what uh, happens here is this, there's a conversation between him and God. And starting in verse 4, I don't know what I was going to say. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So we find Abraham in this conversation with God, and uh, Abraham hears that he's going to have a son. Right? He's this old man. His wife is really old. It's, it's like impossible, right? And so he's like, that's a miracle enough. And then what God does is uh, he says, come outside with me, and, and I want you to look up at this beautiful sky that I've created, and I want you to start numbering the stars if you can do it. And, and Abraham says, uh, that's, that's impossible, God. And, and God's like, yeah, obviously. And, and he says, that's what it's going to be like for someone who tries to count the amount of sons that you're going to have. And so what Abraham does is he reaches down into his robe pocket and he pulls out a calculator and then he starts doing all this math and he says, okay, the probability of me having a child is this, that could happen. And then starts numbering the stars and seeing to what nth degree amount of stars there are. Does he do that? No, what does it say? What does it say? He believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so... uh, it is the belief in God, not the works in God, that is the point here. And, and, and the Judaizers were probably saying, well, no, Abraham was counted righteous uh, because of circumcision. He had to have been circumcised. But he uses, Paul uses this example. This was 14 years before Abraham was circumcised. He was counted righteous before God. So then they say, well, maybe it's because Abraham followed the law. He, he did the right things. That's, that's how he was counted righteous. And then Paul uses this example. He says, no. This is 430 years before the law was even given. The Judaizers didn't even understand Judaism. There has never been a different gospel. And that's the point Paul is making. There is no other gospel. It is not based on the law. It's based on belief in a good God who doesn't give up on his people. And so in conclusion, I just want to ask three questions to three different people. First one is for people who have been Christians for a long time. I know some of you in this church have been in this church for 30 years, and I want to ask you, have you, are you in a place where you've stopped reading your Bible or stopped praying or lost that sense of joy of what it means to have faith save you? Because this passage says that Christians can be fooled. People who believe in the gospel can be infiltrated to believe something different. Don't, be, don't put yourself in that position. There are so many pseudo-gospels, there's so many fake gospels out there, but this is the true gospel. Refresh your heart in it and remind yourself. Martin Luther said that a person should be teaching themselves the gospel every single day. Do you still do that? And do you find that sense of joy you had at the very beginning? Question two. Are there any of you who have, at, who have added anything to the gospel already? Are you living for God out of joy because of what he's done for you? Or are you trying to work your way to him somehow? If the second is true, 
you will never enjoy God. And you'll never get what the true gospel's purpose was for, to live life with him and to, and to have, even more than that, eternity with him. There's joy in that because of our faith. And three, do you believe in this true gospel? There's only one. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. There is no other gospel. Or to say it another way, there's actually no other good news. This is the only good news. Everything in life will leave you wanting, and this will not. It is fulfilling to the end of our days and and beyond. And so Jesus reminds his brothers and sisters here uh, about this true gospel, and and I want us to be reminded of it as well. And I I just invite you, uh, especially if you have never believed this before, to this faith, uh, because without it, we are foolish. It's the greatest thing ever given. So let's just pray one more time. Father God, thank you for this church where I have been taught this gospel and been reminded of your truth uh, on a daily basis. What a, what a joy and privilege it is to be a pastor here. Uh, thank you for just the people in this church who, who love you. And I just, I want to pray for them, God, and, and just pray that you would uh, seek out their heart to, to fall in love with you every single day, that they'd wake up and sing a new song to you and, and be filled with joy because they don't have to work for salvation. It has been given to them, God. And I pray that that would be their source of their greatest joy and out of that joy that they would want to serve. In Jesus' name, amen.